welcome to the Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of 1991, where Alan and I will be carrying side B of a mixtape celebrating the music of our graduation year, including our freshman year of college. That's right. And we tried to go chronologically. Um, but that, that does not mean the songs are in chronological order, but side A, as a reminder, last week, these, uh, those, rather, were the, the songs that were defining moments uh, that, that kind of soundtracked uh, our senior year of high school. Uh, side B, this week, we are looking at the songs that we remember from the summer between high school and college, and of course, the fall of our freshman year at Bowling Green State University, where we went uh, to college. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've already kind of hinted that the musical landscape changes uh, between the two. Um, so it's, I, I will say, Dave, that side B was much harder for me, much more difficult than side A. Um, not sure why that was, because I, there were songs uh, from high school that I they could have made the cut songs that I liked but side B I there were so many songs I wanted to include so it was much more difficult for me whittling down my list for college than it was for my high school year well as you mentioned there there are so many new bands and and not new bands a lot of these were bands that have been around for quite a while they've been releasing you know indie um, records and and playing live um, a lot of them on the west coast and, and maybe even specifically the Pacific Northwest um, that did not reach the rest of America until um, MTV decided to start playing them. So it's not like it's new music per se, but it was uh, new to the rest of America and the rest of the world. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. very true. All right. So we are going to just jump right into it. All right, right. Let's jump in. All right. You begin side B, sir. I'm going to start with one of the greatest pop songs of all time. Uh, one of the, the, the just the greatest constructed pop song. I mean, I'm a huge Dangle fan. We talked about that. That's just that's that's my genre. That's my that's my sweet spot. And this one here is in the Jangle Hall of Fame. It is "There She Goes" by The Laws. Ah, yes. Although first released in 1988, the single somehow failed to move the hearts of listeners. The song was then remixed by Steve, uh, Steve Lillywhite, uh, that did a lot with you too and included it on their debut LP. Uh, this time, the song became a hit in the UK and eventually made its way over to the US, where it charted in 1991. Yes, it did. Uh, another example of that perfect pop song, as I said, this jangle tune eschews any verses and features only a series of choruses with a bridge. Uh, and the result is magic. The band denies that the song is about heroin, by the way. Everyone thinks the song is about heroin. Um, although the heroin as love metaphor does kind of work. Oh, it does. It does work. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not sure I 100% buy it. It's not about heroin. Unfortunately, heroin did make a comeback. Unfortunately, it's still still around. I I thought it's going strong. Well, I thought after the, you know, in the late 60s with Needle and the Damage done and and all of the great, um, a lot of the great 60s icons having uh, lost their lives to the abuses of heroin, that we would uh, have maybe put that in our past. But there definitely was a resurgence um, in the um, early 90s. And I think maybe it did kind of maybe disappear for a little bit for a while, too, before it uh, uh, came back. And unfortunately, with the abuse of opioids and so forth, it's, it's come, you know, it's part of our, our culture, unfortunately, still. Yeah, well, I, I think the bigger issue, I, you know, during that time when, when you saw 
the the numbers go down. It was prescription drugs, right? You know, it, which once they were taken away, you know, my, I know doctors they they're almost scared to prescribe Vicodin now. Once they took that away, well, then right. people made the the leap to to heroin, of course, because of the the addiction to opioids, but. Um, yeah, no, I've always thought that was what the song was about. Yep, so. nope, nope, it's just, uh, it's, it's not, it's just about, uh, you know, uh, the, the effect of someone of the opposite sex on the narrator okay. of the song. It's, it's, um, it's also kind of stalky, in a way. I mean, it's not, it's not every breath you take, but, but it's, I, I don't know, I've always gotten kind of a stalker vibe at, at times from the song. Yeah, interesting, yeah. Uh, the song found its way onto a number of movie soundtracks uh, and was a bigger hit in the late 90s for Christian alternative rock band Sixpence None the Richer. Yes, it was. Uh, I remember this being handed to me on cassette. I was at, This is weird. I was at a party at Bowling Green freshman year, and uh, it was in a dorm room somewhere in Bowling Green, and some girl I did not know just handed it to me and said, here, listen to this. And, and I said... She walked away, and I, I, you know, went to give it back to her, and, and you know, no, she said, "That's just, just keep it, it's yours." So I kept it all these years, and I still have it. <laughs> huh? Wasn't quite the moment in Garden State when uh, Natalie Portman leans over to Zach Braff and says, "You know," when she mentions that she's listening to the Shins and says, "Here, listen to this; it'll change your life," and she puts the headphones um, over his ears. But uh, it was kind of a cool moment where some mysterious woman just. <laughs> hand you a great piece of music and yeah. then disappears into the crowd. Well, I'm jealous. I, I, I've never had a you know a mysterious stranger hand me a song to listen <laughs> to in, in 48 years. I've never had that happen. also one of my favorite movies of the time and it, uh, I haven't heard about it in 30 years so apparently it didn't live up to um, what I thought it maybe should have at the time was So I Married an Axe Murderer. Yes, that that is the first time I remember hearing this song. It was used heavily in, in that film yeah. with Mike Myers. So. Yep. Jane, get me off this crazy thing. Yes, I'm going to have to go back that, and That is such that. an amazing movie. Yeah. It really is. And who was um, the co-star in there? Oh, she was... Oh, it was... Um, yeah, oh, what yeah, is her yeah, name? Yeah, yeah, she was yeah. also in uh, Three Men and yeah, yeah, uh, a baby or a little lady? Which one? I think it was those? a little lady. I think okay. it was a little lady. All right. but, so I'm going to look it up. So um, okay, so uh, Nancy Travis. I, thank I, you. I, I remembered it before yeah. I looked it up. Yep. Okay, all right. Yeah, <laughs> your turn. All right. So uh, my first song, this one, um, this band, uh, the album. First of all, was released in '91. It was released uh, in, I believe, August of '91. Yes. Um, 
They were in heavy rotation on WFAL, where you and I were on the radio. Rock solid WFAL. Yeah, during college. Um, <laughs> what was your, did you have a nickname? I was Cyrano, if I remember correctly. I think so. I think I was just Al. I, Cyrano and Al. <laughs> yeah, or, or I think I might have went by Big Al. And then, oh, yeah. Or, and then uh, I was Dave because it was Al and Dave's most triumphant time warp. Yeah. Where and we then, played. Then we had Radio Free Radio. Radio Free Radio, that, that, yes. That Radio Free Radio was the key. It was. Uh, and then we just played everything. We played, yeah. We I brought know. in our childhood records, if I remember. We you played know, Ernie's yeah. Rubber Ducky right next to, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. We'd go Billy Holiday to, <laughs> to you know, uh, I, everything. It I, was fun. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah, Billy Holiday to like Metallica into Rubber Ducky. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and anything, anything, and anything everything went. goes. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. it was. Oh, those were the days. Uh, anyway, uh, this band was in rotation, and it was not the single that I've chosen. Um, I remember on WFAL, it was Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Mm, yes, yeah, we had yeah. we had to play it in rotation, um, and you know that was there first release from the album pocket full of kryptonite um it was college radio so of course college rock stations knew the spin doctors before uh the mainstream um but pocket full of kryptonite uh as the band's studio debut uh, initially sold a respectable 60,000 copies and it was due to its growing hardcore fan base among college students, primarily. Um, but in late 1991, several radio stations, mainstream, started playing that, that single, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Um, and by mid-92, there was a huge demand for their sound, especially among top 40 radio stations who were beginning to push back against the tide of hip-hop, is, is what was happening. Um, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong proved only a modest hit, though. It climbed to number 17. It was a top 20 hit. It was their follow-up single, though, that exploded. Two Princes? Two Princes, and that is the song that I've chosen. Uh, Two Princes became their biggest hit, their best-known song. Um, and that underdog theme, here, of course, it was a poor prince trying to convince the girl that she should marry him instead of his wealthy counterpart. Uh, that underdog theme, it shows up a lot in lead singer Chris Barron's uh, songs. I, he... Uh, you know, he attributes that to his itinerant childhood. He spent time in Australia and Europe before settling in New Jersey. But it also helped that Barron was a fanboy. In interviews, he would gush about his love for J.R. Togan and the Arthurian legends. Uh, it was his love for fantasy uh, that in part inspired Two Princes, a song that he wrote when he was just 19 years old. Barron said that as a child I loved wizards and kings and queens and princes and princesses. I especially loved Shakespeare. Uh, Chris Barron and I could be besties. I, I'm, I'm just saying. I'm throwing that out there now. He said uh, I gravitated toward that kind of imagery just because I liked books, plays, and poems from that period of time. Uh, so apparently the song was originally I found this interesting, played much faster. But when the band came to record Two Princes, they slowed it down. Drummer Aaron Comus, it's always the drummer that determines the tempo. I've learned that from that thing you do, actually, if you remember that film. Um, drummer uh, Aaron Comus said that, you know, 
he it just felt right to, to slow down the song. He said, there are certain songs that when you find the right tempo, all of a sudden the lyrics come to life and it feels right. And with Two Princes, he said they, they really lucked out. And he's not wrong. It's a very simple song. There's not a lot going on in the song. In fact, it's very repetitive even. But that hook is infectious. And 30 years later, I, I just can't help but sing along. Two Princes, uh, released in 91. It did climb the charts, became a top 10 hit, peaked at number 7 in 93. But again, on college radio, we knew this band long before most of the the listening uh, public. So they they made my list. Yeah, you know, going back again, which I have a feeling we're going to go back to this a lot, to the Rock is Dead and, and the revolution of 91, and everyone disattributes it to grunge. Um, and, and really, it wasn't obviously just grunge. That was kind of a, a new sound in the way that it kind of replaced the harder music of the time. Um, and so the hair bands, you know, you were replaced with um, with a different kind of harder uh, music uh, filled with angst. Um, but then you also had the, and I mentioned last week, uh, the new wave of alternative music. Where in the late 80s, you had bands like R.E.M. and The Cure kind of find some commercial success. I think those bands then evolved in the 90s. And I think the fact that, that Nirvana, and we're going to talk about Nirvana, I assume, at some point, uh, it's got <clears throat> on MTV just kind of opened the doors for alternative music in general being popular. Then it opened doors for a lot of these college radio darlings to become popular. Bands like Jim Blossoms, Counting Crows, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Hooting the Blowfish. My gosh, I mean, oh, no yeah. one was bigger in the charts than Hooting the Blowfish in the early 90s. Um, all these bands, uh, I, I do think, oh their commercial success, at least getting their foot in the, you know, getting mainstream radio play, I should say, based on the fact that MTV decided to play Smells Like Teen Spirit. So the, the effect of grunge wasn't just in grunge itself, but it's how it just knocked down the door for these other bands that have been making music since the late 80s, the Pixies. I mean, the pi- Pixies, oh. grunge, at least Nirvana, wouldn't be around if it wasn't for the Pixies. No, absolutely. And, and so these bands were there, like you said, on college radio, laying in wait. And when, you know, the floodgates opened, um, record companies and radio stations were more than happy to sign them and put them on the air. Yeah, no, you're right. And, you know, Spin Doctors, it's a great example. They, you know, they rocked this very disheveled look in 91. And, and so they were tagged as an alternative band, which was good for marketing since it, it made them sound edgy. But really, you know, they were just a rock band with, with major, you know, pop appeal. They, had, they just had sure. pop sensibilities. Right. And um, not really an alternative band by any stretch, but you're right. They, they were part of that, uh, part of that, you know, ensemble. See, that, yeah, it's the, the, those the bands evolution that, of New Wave that yeah, turned into. It, it did. It just, um, and, and rightfully so. I mean, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a glorious time for music really. I mean, I remember 
there were so many bands and I just, you know, it was a time that when you went to the bars, at least in, in a college town, the music that was playing was music you wanted to hear. You know, it was not, you know, now I'm not talking about the meat markets and the dance floors, but I mean, it, it was just... They uh, were playing Delight. Uh, yeah, they were, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a wonderful assortment of music and you could argue that a lot of it sounded the same, but it was just, I don't know, it was just, it was fun, it was at times funky, and it was just infectious. I mean, you, you could not help but enjoy the songs, and you found yourself singing along. And, you know, that's what popular music should be, and, you know, you, it's still there, but so much of it now is dance, heavy dance-influenced, right. and, you know, about pushing boundaries and seeing how far you can go that it's it's just it's lost a lot of that mass appeal i think i mean popular music today is aimed at a specific demographic and i don't know that that has always been the case i mean i think it's come and gone certainly the 50s were a specific demographic right um yeah no the early 90s you're you're right i mean it well, a lot of it, I think, I think two reasons why we're able to split off into these, which isn't always good, because we don't have a lot of music we share as a culture anymore. No, we don't. Like we did with the Beatles and, you know, even in the, in the, in the 80s with Michael Jackson and so forth. But um, part of it is personal music, right? Became uh, personal music players. The Walkman started that out. Yes. And then MP3 players and, then of course, streaming services to the point in, in AirPods. Like everybody just has their own little universe of music now. That's part of it. But part of it was the fact that, that, that rock, guitar-based rock and roll, um, in, in the late 80s was giving away to um, just a, a different type of pop music that was electronically produced. Again, I like a lot of it, but there was definitely a rebellion against it. Runge was one of those. The, these alternative bands that kind of came from New Wave is another. And then there's a third, and that was the crossover country artists oh, yeah, yes. of the early 90s was also a response to, I think, this disappearing guitar-based rock because it was country, but it made an appeal in a, in a mainstream sort of way yeah. to rock fans. Yeah, in fact, I mean, you've always had country artists that have crossed over. I mean, it, it's it's been a mainstay. Um, Elvis was really a country artist, and of course, Johnny Cash, and you know, you can go back to the beginning, and then all the way through, and including Dolly Parton and Eddie Rabbit and Kenny Rogers and and Crystal Gale, Willie Nelson, and yeah, and it's always been there. Um, the '80s had more than its share, but the early '90s, I and mean, there were. There were times... Garth that, Brooks, Alan Jackson, oh, Shania Twain. Shania and Faith right, Hill and right. Tim... I mean, they, you know, it was... Half of the top 20 was, was country My know, guess is that a true times. country artist probably didn't really even consider it country. Right. They and, probably considered it... In fact, uh, it's funny, there was a band uh, called Blue Rodeo, which I liked, and they, they, they were one of the early alt-country rock bands, which yeah. became a thing, you know, with Ryan Adams and, and Wilco and so forth. But I loved it because I, I would play it, and my country fans would say, oh, that's just alternative music. And my alternative fans would say, oh, that's just country music. So I knew it hit a sweet spot between yeah. the two of them, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's I don't know, it's funny, but... Yeah, it was it was a return to the eighties in some respects because what was so beautiful about the eighties is that the radio played everything. Yeah. Everything. Every genre, it did not matter, was filtered into the same radio station. That by the late eighties that was no longer the case. In the mid nineties, you started to see that again for a very brief period. Yep. And of course today, now now it's, I mean, most people, I think, probably just go with their satellite radio because you pick your niche, you, know, you pick your station, and you never turn from it. Well, it's getting so. ridiculous, too, because my favorites, of course, are, are lithium and, um, and uh, first wave. Well, now they have lithium, 
like icons, lithium deep tracks, yeah, yeah. first wave deep track. I, I saw, <laughs> it keeps I saw more that. and more specific. I, I get I get the emails like almost daily now of the new stations right. that are being added, and I'm like, I, <laughs> it's just. Hey, why not? Why yeah, not? well, yeah, but it's like, just you know, I, I, what? That's for another episode. Anyway, um, two princes is my good, first selection. Good choice. So, good choice. Right, it's back to you. All right, so I'm going to um, go along in the same vein as somewhat um, of, of a band or an artist, I should say, who'd been around, who'd been in part of the scene, but did not find that widespread popularity <clears throat> until the uh, early '90s, and that is Matthew Sweet. Girlfriend? Girlfriend. Love Matthew Sweet. Love Matthew Sweet, yes. Um, This song, Girlfriend, was not a hit on the the pop charts, Um, although with proper promotion, I'm sure it would have been. It would have been. Oh, Um, yeah. Had MTV really pushed it. Uh, Matthew Sweet's uh, brand of jangle pop did climb the modern rock charts, however, in 1991. That was a big thing. I'm I'm still partial to the hot... Well, um, 100, of course, in the in the top 40 because I grew up with Casey oh, Kasem. Of course, um, not that the other charts don't have as much validity, but to me, it's just like uh, you know, it's the it's the ultimate chart when you can reach number one. But the modern you know rock chart uh, was was huge in the 90s when all these bands started coming out. When you know, do you know when they changed? Because it it used to be college rock. That was yes, that was the yes, chart was college true. rock. Right, right. I'm not sure when it actually turned to me to, to modern I, rock. I, probably when when people in in high school started to discover it and and, you think and so? I think when 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 it moved beyond the college campuses, right? Yeah. Cuz it was college radio. We right. lived near a college town. I remember we lived close to to Kent State and once in a while at night I could pull in their college radio station and hear the Smiths on okay. the radio, but it was pretty pretty rare. Yeah, no, it's, it's the same chart. I'm yeah. Just, I'm, yeah. I'm just they semantics. Change, right? I'm just not sure when that happened. So, uh, other gems would follow, like uh, "I've Been Waiting," uh, "Sick of Myself." In fact, the, the album "Girlfriend" I think is is, is one of the classic jangle oh, albums of all time. Um, Sweet actually honed his craft in the Athens, Georgia scene of the 1980s. Um, of course, we had all sorts of, of bands, you know, Pylon, we had uh, Indigo Girls, we had B-52s, we have R.E.M. I mean, there's just so many. I'm missing a bunch of them, but the, the yeah. artists that came out of that scene, uh, but found his solo breakthrough with the album Girlfriend, a CD I distinctly remember playing on heavy rotation at WFAL yep. in Bowling Green, as we've already established, we were both DJs at the time. Um, Matthew Sweet continues to record and perform um, in the bounds of this alternative power pop signature sound. And I do encourage people out there to seek out some of his more recent recordings, um, including his collaborations with Susanna Hoffs, yes. covering many songs from past yes. decades. Under the covers. There, there are three volumes, and I'm telling you, what, the two of them together, it's magical. I... I I, I listen to it all the time. I like volume one best. Um, but yeah, it's just the two of them, they just have a, a chemistry. And musically, they just hone in and their their harmonies are incredible. I mean, if you've not heard the Under the Covers, uh, you know, collections, you're missing out. It, it makes sense because Jangle Pop really got its roots in the, the 60s pop. Um, particularly the birds with with the sound of their of the twelve string and so forth, but um, that that pop sensibility from the sixties lives on in bands like the Smithereens right. and, and bands um, you know like like even the Jim Blossoms and so forth. Um, so you can really trace that line. And Tom Petty's part of that, and Bruce Springsteen's part of that. Yeah. But uh, there, there's just a nice nice through line uh, throughout the ages um, that kind of rally around this sound. Yeah. 
Well, and you know, give Susanna Hoffs her, her due as well. The Bengals were very rooted in 60s music. Oh, yeah. Music, we right? established on this broadcast yeah. that uh, the uh, turn, was it the um, Eternal, Eternal Flame, Flame was, was more of a, of a bird-sounding type. Well, Beatles. It was Beatles. Beatles. That's right. That's Beatles right. Inspired, but um, but the, the Beatles period, which was kind of inspired by Dylan and the Birds, exactly. the, rubber, the yeah. rubber Soul era. Yep. So, yeah, they're all in that same, oh, yeah. same but, zone. you need to get back in the arms of a good friend and I need to get back in the arms of a good friend you know Matthew Sweet it's funny because he was on my list he was in my 12 until just about two or three days ago I took him off I did not think necessarily you'd have him. I just, I had to let him go. So I'm, I'm so happy you included him. Um, and, and that was a CD that after, I think the second time I played it in rotation, I ran to finders and, oh, yeah. and I, I purchased that CD I, and I, I wore it out. I loved Matthew Sweet. Still do. Well, I was just a quick aside. I was up at BG uh, this week to pick up my son Yeah, and I was walking around the, the downtown while he was still packing and uh, finders was closed. Really? Yeah. Now, now their 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 like, open sign like permanently. Well, that's what I don't know. The open sign was um, not on, and it was like two o'clock on a on a Thursday. So I don't know. Maybe they only open in the evenings. I was hoping they weren't a victim of of the of either a COVID uh, or b of the just the streaming music services finally putting a place like that out of business because they had signs about like go online to whatever order this and order that so i wonder if they just couldn't keep up the overhead of the store if they're just going to continue to sell cds um like almost like an amazon kind of thing but well the last time i was there it was probably a couple years ago i remember talking to um the manager i don't i don't think it was the owner i'm but the manager that was on on duty and i said you know how is streaming affecting sales i'm surprised that finders is still thriving and at the time he said oh we're, we're doing just fine he said we have a loyal fan base had a lot of vinyl too they yeah added and he later said on. you know the vinyl the the posters the you know our we we have genres uh that are not readily available anywhere else which has always been true of finders and he said you know college students yeah you have two-day shipping with amazon but Anything you can find on Amazon, you can find here and take it home and listen to it same day. He said yeah. college students have never never betrayed us, never let us down. So if they did finally fall victim to the digital streaming, yeah, I hope that's not. heartbreaking. And, and Finders was, was great because it had a huge collection of music, but it was a little more. It was still independently was, owned. And it was it was pricey. I mean, it, But I my favorite was, was Mad Hatter. The little oh, hole in the yeah. wall, you walk in past the incense. When they had all the bootlegs. I mean, I, so many. And I, Dr. Heskey was our, uh, my English professor who ran the thing. And yeah. it was just, he was... It was cool because he could order anything. He didn't have a huge collection like Finders, but he can he could find any type of bootleg yeah. or um, an out of print yeah. album. And it was also part head shop. I mean, yeah, let's no, call yeah, it yeah. what it what it was. But, <laughs> right, but there's um, great now. Mad, Mad Hatter, I know, is gone. I've, I've yeah, yeah, know, they're gone. In subsequent visits, they've closed their doors. But all right, all right. My next one. Here we go. It's time for a novelty tune. You ready? Yep. All right. So uh, this one released in 1991. 
Uh, it was a song by Right Said Fred. Oh, jeez. Okay. Which <laughs> and you give me crap for delight. Hey, hey. I, this one was making the list. I mean, I didn't care if I had. Well, okay, to, and, I'm, I, and, and I, it's fine. I like the song. Thank I'm just you. saying, don't give me crap for delight. I did not give you crap for delight. You are reading far too much into that. Um, right Said Fred was comprised of two brothers. They were both buff, uh, which was important to where this story goes. Uh, their names were Richard and Fred. Fairbrass. And at the time, that also included guitarist Rob Manzoli. Uh, the Fairbrass brothers were managers at a London dance studio called The Dance Attic, uh, where they found that the dancers there overwhelmingly were very narcissistic. And what's worse, uh, they frequently were posing when they should be dancing. <laughs> uh, as, as Rich Fairbrass tells it, um, Basically, one day, they had a loop playing on the computer. And inspired by his dance studio experience with these very vain, arrogant, uh, very pompous dancers, he spontaneously took his shirt off and started singing, I'm too sexy for my shirt. (laughs) Well, the other members of the band thought that it was hilarious. And the three of them wrote, I'm too sexy, around that phrase. A demo then found its way to the ears of a music promoter named Guy Holmes, who... Uh, basically contacted the band and had them remix the song as a dance track. It was originally a rocker, which would be really interesting to hear. I, I wish that I could be, hear yeah. that. Um, but they, they remixed it as a dance track and then uh, Holmes began shopping it to record labels. Uh, Holmes had no takers, okay? So I mean, no record label would touch this. So he set up his own label and he, he titled Tug Records and he released the song on his own. It became a huge hit once the BBC started playing it. Now, Holmes went on to, to a very sexful, successful career uh, as a record mogul. And man. a sexful, perhaps. A sexful, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was Freudian slip, of course. <laughs> uh, he promoted Salt and Pepper. He, he brought Crazy Frogs to the masses. But speaking to The Independent about the first time he heard I'm Too Sexy, Holmes said, I heard the song coming back from a night out with this very cute girl I fancied who did not fancy me, unfortunately. He said she was sitting drunk on the back seat and uh, she managed a band. She put the cassette in uh, to the the radio and there was I'm Too Sexy, this awful rock demo version. It was clear it would make a great dance record though. Um, Radio One loved it, but no major label would touch it. I thought bollocks to them and I put it out myself. It sold six million singles and five million albums. So today, of course, the group members cite a bass line and a little bit of marijuana as the creative inspiration for their lyrics. Fred Fairbrass said that uh, it was a very, very hot day in a very, very non-air-conditioned basement studio. It was the perfect storm. And lyrically, the whole supermodel thing was, a hu- was, was huge at the time. So he said they were simply making fun of the narcissism that came with that. He's not wrong. I mean, the supermodel thing, as he, as he called it, it became bigger still the following year. Do you remember RuPaul released the hit single Supermodel? You better yeah, work. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, this was a, a constant. So, I'm Too Sexy was the number one hit. It, it was a number one hit in 28 countries. Okay. But not in Right Said Fred's homeland of England. The song was held from the top spot for six weeks by the unflinching stranglehold of... Everything I do, I do it for you. Oh, my gosh. Okay? Which refused to concede the top spot. Uh, Wright said Fred never had another hit in the U.S. 
Uh, but I'm Too Sexy remains one of the biggest singles of any one-hit wonder on the Billboard Hot 100. It spent three weeks on top, and it became the first British group since the Beatles to top the chart with their debut single. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan. Too sexy for Milan. New York and Japan. noted, the group started off as a serious rock act, but when I'm Too Sexy took off, the Fairbrass Brothers took on the personas of the character in the song. Uh, they began dressing the part and preening appropriately. Uh, the group quickly settled in as a dance music act with a humorous bent. Uh, their litmus test for a good song became, does it make you laugh? And most UK listeners were in on the joke, but American audiences often perceived Wright said Fred Frontman as being just as imbecilic as they appeared. <laughs> and the brothers understand why that perception existed, but they've always felt it was unjustified. Uh, Fred Fairbrass is quick to point out that writing clever, simple songs is much harder than it appears, and it has a great deal of artistic merit. He said it's just like comedies on television and film. They don't get the respect they deserve. Um, so in America, yeah, this song was so pervasive that it may have ultimately hurt their fortunes because when their second single, Don't Talk, Just Kiss, was released here in the U.S., it only reached number 76, in large part because radio stations were still playing I'm Too Sexy and they weren't in the least bit interested in playing something different from the act. So uh, this song... So I, there's something a little more than Millie Vanilli going on. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And they, they've had a very successful career in Europe and they're still going, but... Yeah, I'm too sexy. I okay. As you say, I gave you crap for delight. You can bring all the crap. No, I'm not. I love. I love this song. I I just this is one that I. I mean, musically, it's not as good as delight. Well, no, but it's fun. Yeah, no, this one it is just I. I still love this song, and I, I love novelty. But you know, this is just. This was 1991. I remember this song. It was everywhere. So, I think didn't people like shirts? I think were in fashion at the time. I'm too sexy short yeah, shirts. Well, yeah, I'm too sexy. Everything. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm too sexy for my cat. For my whatever. cat. Yeah, oh, love it. <laughs> All right, your turn. I guess now is as good a time as any to uh, talk about the quote to grunge revolution. All right. And what is there to say? Right. We've already kind of nibbled around the edges here with the grunge revolution, 1991. Grunge, of course. Um, had been finding its voice on the West Coast since the late 80s, but it wasn't until record execs understood that the time was right commercially to introduce uh, the sound to the world. In fact, I watched a documentary on CNN has these really nice documentaries. They use this filler on the weekends, and they usually hit a decade, um, and they'll talk about the movies of the decade or the politics of the decade, or, or in this case, I was watching the music of the 90s. And, um, I, you know, obviously... 
It's always a weird line. I, you know, the Paola scandal in the 1950s, I think it was the late 50s, wasn't it? Yeah. When, yeah. when they, you know, DJs were being paid by record companies to play certain records. Um, I mean, that was that considered illegal, right? There, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, was, it was bribery. Yeah. So talk about a monopoly. In, in, in the 90s, really, you only had one popular music station. You had VH1, which was kind of an adult contemporary. Right. Um, which may not even have been out. At nine. No, I think it, it was. Oh, out, it was out. VH1 was out. But MTV it. drove everything, right? It drove not only the music, but culture and fashion and, and so forth. So obviously, you wanted your product on there. And they would have monthly or weekly uh, production meetings where they would decide what they were going to start playing. So I'm sure record companies were constantly trying to convince them. So I don't know where that line is, of, but they, were, they had a lot of power, put it this way. They, they had did. a lot of power. And there was a, uh, her name escapes me, but there was a young woman who was on this board of, of execs to decide. And she spoke up one week and said, hey, we have this video that just came in from Nirvana. Um, I think we should start playing this. I think I think the time is right for this. And I think the other execs weren't so sure. Uh, and she said, "Okay." I st-, she basically said, "I stake my job on this. I'm I, I'm so convinced that this is going to be a hit that basically I'll just I'll quit if it isn't." Well, see, I thought I, I remember Nirvana. I remember Smells Like Teen Spirit on 120 Minutes because here's the thing: MTV. They had their rotation mm-hmm. throughout the day, but then they had their their very specific yes, right. demographics. Yo, MTV Raps. Yo, MTV Raps, Headbangers Ball. Right. 120 um, Minutes was their alternative yeah. segment. And yeah. 120 Minutes, I remember it being played there. I don't remember, I thought MTV kind of refused to, to bring it into heavy rotation until it began to climb the charts. Once it became a hit, then they, they swallowed their pride, admitted their Well, according mistake. to the documentary, it made it look like okay. this very brave young woman huh, put okay. it out there. Now, it could have been. It could have been very well that um, 120 minutes had been played. But again, people usually only watch those shows if that was your... Right. Right. Yeah. I didn't watch Headbangers Ball. Yeah, no. I didn't watch MTV Raps. I watched 120 minutes. So it, 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 they did have their main rotation. So yeah, it may have been on 120 minutes. I don't remember it being on yeah, there. I, well, I, and I could be wrong. That was just my perception. But but the fact that because because at the time 120 minutes was still mostly the new wave stretch of, so of alternative. Who was this? I mean, you said you forget the name. I forget. But, the name. but how did she come to discover, and why was she so? Adamant. Well, I'm guessing they had her on the board as a, a younger perspective, which okay. was smart to do right, as yeah. long as they listened to her. And this was a case where, to their credit, they did. So I got the impression that, yeah, she had her finger on the pulse of, of the uh, of the grunge scene for quite a while huh. um, and, and just had to find that time when commercially she could say, yeah, this is the time. So th- there's probably a lot more to the story, but I'd really never heard that before, which was interesting. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, but this is where I remember. I remember my college roommate. We brought up Doug last week, okay? Yeah. And, uh, and Doug, I don't remember him being a grunge fan. No. But I distinctly no. remember, I was living in Rogers. I remember him walking in, holding, it, was, it might have been a single, actually. I think it might have been. And he said, you know, you have to stop everything you're doing right now, Dave, and listen to this. And I'm like, okay. And that wasn't like him, right? I can't even imagine him doing he or saying he, that. He, yes, he did. And and I don't know. It may have been. It may have been one of the girls he was dating at the time may have been in. I don't know, because this wasn't his normal fare. Okay. Uh, but it just shows you the crossover appeal this song had, okay? Right. Because he was into Pet Shop Boys and, and oh, yeah. more yeah. electronic type, type yeah, music. Yeah, he, he loved the electronica and, yeah. And, and he popped it in. And right away, I was just kind of like... Because it's, it sounded like the alternative music I liked, but it was much harder. And again, I wasn't opposed to things being harder. Um, to me, it was all about like the, the weight 
of the music. And I could tell that this was different. Um, you know, hair bands were all about, excuse my French, getting laid, right? Getting drunk, um, just being silly, being stupid, being dumb. Fine, whatever. That, that may work for some people. To me, it just was kind of insulting. I sound like such a freaking snob. It just didn't do it for me, right? Um, grunge was about angst. It was about you know, issues that were real in people's lives. It was heavy. It, it meant something. It, 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 there was a huge difference, even though musically you could say, like there were some bands like, like the Cult, for instance, which they sounded alternative, but they also kind of sounded like they could be a hair band, but then they were kind of also grungy eventually. Right. They straddled that line. So it is weird that, that harder rock can be so close in sound, but see, be so different culturally, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know, grunge was, it was a look and a sound. Well, so was you know, well, so uh, were the hair bands. Exactly. But, you know, it, it, was, it was flannel. It was a disheveled look with flannel. And then it was the distorted and, and emotive, distorted, you know, growling organic guitar. And then you had the emotive, very moody, very angst-driven lyrics. I mean, right. that, right. That, right. that combination was grunge. And, it, um, it, it just spoke to me more, maybe because we were, we were nerdy kids, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, not that we didn't have parties, which we did, and we have lots of stories that we can tell from those parties. Um, but our whole objective in life wasn't driving around just constantly meeting girls for a night, right? Uh, we were the nerdy kids going to Denny's, as I mentioned last week, having coffee because we were too young to go to bars. Um, at one point, I think we were even probably smoking pipes at a booth, which, by the way, you could do back then. Um, you know, trying to emulate our favorite teachers and talk about, you know, literature and uh, you know, all that really self-absorbed stuff. Right. We were discovering I'm, I'm, the meaning of life and talking but about I'm still kind of proud ro- romantics. Of that. And yeah, oh yeah. I'm still kind of proud of that. I am too. Not, not against kids that just are looking for a good time. But there was just something about, I just, again, it's this, it's the elitism in me, perhaps, or the snobbery in me. I'm just, I wanted more out of life, right? Yeah. Than yeah. just uh, the, the thrill of the evening or, or some quick fix. Um, it was all more long-term for me. So that's why, you know, and, and I still wasn't as much of a grunge fan. I mean, I, I wouldn't have called myself a huge grunge fan in college. Like, I liked Soundgarden. I liked Pearl Jam. I liked Nirvana. I bought the CDs. I was still much more of, you know, just a flat out alternative music fan, the Jangle fan. You know, I, I would have liked preferred the Jim Blossoms over Soundgarden any day, even though I liked both of them. But I could listen to it where the hairband stuff, I just couldn't do it. Hmm. Like Cherry Pie, Warren's Cherry Pie is a perfect example. You put that against something like, you know, Come As You Are by Nirvana. And oh, oh yeah. It's just, it's Come like As You that. Are is, I mean, it's worlds better. Right. But. I, I like cherry pie. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, how do you pick a song? I mean, uh, yeah, I'm waiting to see whatever. where this is going. Um, I could have picked. Yeah, I should have probably picked "Tell Like Teen Spirit" because that was the okay. song, well, the watershed what, song. But I chose "Come As You Are." Okay. Well, I'm not there. I, okay. I ended okay. my list with okay. "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Okay. Right. So we are going to have to. And then that off. probably is the better song, just because that was the watershed. Right. So, but, but you, you go. Come as you are. But come as you are. I just love that song.
I could have picked any number of them. Right when, you know, I, I debated it too. I almost went with In Bloom. I, I, I was all over the place because right. I, I could have picked any song on the album. Um, but anyway, I don't want to steal your thunder. No, there's no, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. Okay. I mean, nothing, I'll, I do have another song specifically. Another grunge or? example on here. Um, and again, that's the same thing. Like what grunge, could, I could have chosen Soundgarden. I could have chosen some of the more obscure uh, grunge acts that didn't have any, uh, didn't have as much commercial liability or did not appear on MTV. But did Soundgarden, was Soundgarden 91 though? Sound, well, Soundgarden, yes. And, and not not Black Hole Sun, which was a huge hit right, yeah, that later, was later on on MTV. Later, yeah. But yeah, Soundgarden was around. So was Temple the Dog, which was a uh, combination of uh, okay. members of Pearl Jam I don't remember them actually having releases in 91 specifically. I mean, not commercially, but I mean, these bands go back to like the late 80s. Right. Right, for the most right. Part. but I mean, for our, for the purpose of our list, though, I mean, well, yeah, it, I mean, I could have picked something that would have been on an album from well, Soundgarden '91, yeah, but okay. I didn't because yeah, people aren't familiar with that. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so nothing. You don't want to talk about the song specifically at all, or no, no, I just I, I just picked a song. No. Yeah, you just picked one. Okay, yeah, no, it's I come as you are is fantastic. I mean, how do you you know? Okay, so well, we will face off and talk more about Nirvana soon. Um, but right now, and I hinted at this last week, uh, my next song is by Metallica. It is from the Black Album, uh, the self-titled Metallica album. Uh, it hit number 16, peaked at 16, and I went with Enter Sandman. Okay, yeah, the, that was the first yeah, single. I, I went with Enter Sandman. Um, the, uh, and, you know, last week we talked about, uh, what, what was it, The Unforgiven, I mean, beautiful song. I almost went with Nothing Else Matters, which to me is still one of the most romantic. So I mean, you don't think romantic when you think Metallica, but not, but Nothing Else Matters is just... No, that's a great that's I a great love song. that song. Yep. But I had to go enter Sandman because that was the song that brought Metallica into the mainstream. I mean, that, that was the song that made the shift for them that, you know... Um, which it, a lot of fans, by the way... Didn't appreciate right because right. Uh, the blackout had a much more polished, produced sound to it. It did, yeah. And the song was written by band members James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and, and Kirk Hammett. Uh, Enter Sandman is about nightmares and things that go bump in the night. Um, it it has by far the most radio play by of, of all of Metallica songs. Um, James Hetfield's original lyric was about was actually about sudden infant death syndrome. It was actually about SIDS. It was about crib death. Um, you know, when, when a baby dies unexpectedly in its crib. The line, off to Never Neverland, was actually disrupt the perfect family plan. Ooh, that's really dark. Yeah, it was very dark. Uh, the Sandman, um, in, in the original version, was responsible for killing the baby, and that was how he explained SIDS in, in the song. Uh, it was pretty gruesome stuff, actually. So... Their producer, Bob Rock, he convinced him to change it to make it more accessible and meaningful. Uh, the band had a policy of not commenting on each other's individual contributions. Um, it, was, it was just a taboo thing. He didn't do it. But producer Bob Rock was an outsider, and he felt free to speak up. And to his surprise, Hetfield took it well, and he altered the lyric accordingly, probably for the best. Uh, Enter Sandman is the first track, and it's the lead single from the album. Um, it was their fifth album, and it was a metal landmark. And, and far and away, it remains their most popular. It's, it has it is sold a stunning 16 million copies in America and many more worldwide. 
uh, Led Zeppelin and ACDC. I mean, they had huge sellers in the 70s and 80s. But in the hard rock uh, milieu, I mean, the Black Album is by far the biggest seller released after 1990. Um, in December 2009, Nielsen uh, SoundScan announced that it had actually surpassed Shania's, Shania Twain's Come On Over to become the best-selling album since they began tracking sales for Billboard on March 1st, 1991. So, um, you know... The, it, it, this is just and the album is still held a classic the song is still very much beloved uh, the song marked a shift though as, as I said from Metallica uh, away from the more complex tracks uh, with multiple time signatures and, and the like that, that were in play on their previous album and Justice for All and the sound was much rawer too yeah oh yeah yeah um, you know think of one as an example right. one is just oh my it's mind blowing um but, you know, in an effort to build shorter, to-the-point songs, they, they used just two riffs on the track, on Enter Sandman, and they based the rest of the song off of just, you know, those, those two riffs. The result was a straightforward, hard rock song that helped seal the coffin on, on hair metal, on hair bands, largely. Um, so, yeah, I had to go Enter Sandman, and it is just, it's still, I mean, you know, it is just a phenomenal phenomenal too. Good choice. Yeah, I'll happily. Um, well, I didn't officially choose Metallica anyway; it was an alternate. But happy, yeah. happy to um, choose that one. Even though I like Unforgiven better. Yeah. No, I'm that that trio of songs. All three of yeah. them are. You yeah. Know, they're they're legendary. The, the album is legendary. So. All, all right. right. All right. Uh, another another band that was introduced to me at WFL. I don't think you were maybe a fan of this song. I think I remember you not liking it, but I could be wrong. Um, but it was the number one um, modern rock song of 1991. Hmm. And it was born from the ashes of the clash. Oh, okay. Big audio dynamite too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the song was called Rush. Yep. From the album Globe. And now I'd, I'd never, I still don't care for it. Not, not, not really. No. <laughs> Figured. Don't, don't like it. Um, last week I chose Groove is in the Heart by Delight, which featured a rich tapestry of samples in the hip hop tradition. Uh, here's a second example, although this time, instead of some of the jazz samples that they pulled into the, to Delight, um, this was, um, th- these samples came from classic rock, tunes like uh, Bob O'Reilly by The Who and Deep Purple's Child in Time, among several other classic rock hits. Um, it hit, like I said, it hit number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart and uh, was the chart's most successful single of 1991. Uh, after being fired from The Clash, The Clash liked to fire their members, as yes, we talked about. Yes, they did. Uh, Mick Jones formed a new band called TRAC, which then evolved into Big Audio Dynamite, which evolved into Big Audio Dynamite 2. Uh, like The Clash, Big Audio Dynamite incorporated a mix of rock, punk, dance, funk, and reggae. And, um, you know, I've had discussions, arguments with, with friends um, about punk music, uh, the punk pioneers. And, you know, I'm a huge 
Ramones fans we've established. And I like The Clash, but I lean more Ramones. Um, and, and I have a friend who leans more Clash. And that's that's his argument. He'd say, you know, the Ramones are a one-trick pony, uh, which I don't disagree with, but they do, they do it well, you know? They, they do it well, it's but early yeah. Early rock every, and roll, bubblegum, Every song is the same, yeah. But the Clash really did uh, experiment with lots of different genres, and they were very, very progressive in the way that they incorporated different musical styles. Yeah, to the point where it was punk music because of the attitude, but not necessarily punk music all the time in, in sound, if that makes sense. And this would be a good example of that. If I had my time again, I would do it all the same. And not change a single thing, even when I was the blind. For the heartache and the pain that I caused throughout my years. Fully grown And I know where it's at Somehow I stay thin While the other guys got fat All the chances that I've blown And the times that I've been down I didn't get too high Kept my feet on the we kind of touched on it last week a little bit but uh we did we did kind of rally against some of this this music because we were just kind of stuck in the the classic rock of the 60s and 70s and uh i remember a couple conversations one conversation with a with a colleague named daryl do you remember daryl he was the one that daryl. kind of predicted uh he predicted streaming music actually not quite streaming music but he said someday there would be a service where you could go onto the internet and you would say, these are the 10 songs I want on a CD. And then the company would put those 10 songs on a CD and send it back to you. Huh. Now, granted, six years later, we had CD burners. We right. couldn't comprehend at the time we would have that. Barely anyone had a personal computer. But he was on the right idea as far as how things would yeah. go. I do not remember Daryl. Yeah, he, uh, he ended up working in an ostrich farm somewhere the last okay. time I heard from him. But, but anyway, we had a debate with him uh, about keyboards in music. And we were saying that, that, that rock... In, in classic rock specifically, like, shouldn't have keyboards. I don't know why. I think it was you, maybe you rallying more. Because then he had all these great examples. He's like, well, what about Rush? Well, what about Genesis? Well, what about Van Halen? And we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then I remember you and I, both of us, uh, applied for the music director's position at WFL. And the music director got to choose the songs on rotation. Right. And I think we had in our head, we were going to have some revolution. We were going to get rid of all this new stuff, this new modern rock stuff that we weren't quite so sure about and bring it back to, to the basics, which of course is exactly not what they wanted to hear. Yeah. No, they were trying to, they were trying to move away from that. They wanted to become more. Yes. And I get that now. And, and I, I don't know. I totally agree with that. But yeah. at the time we were in our little bubble. Well, we, we weren't we, alone. We just we, come there were, from our there little were, town. There were other DJs that were very much aligned with our, right. with our thinking. But right. you know, it's funny because yeah, we, we did rally against a lot of it. 
but now when I look back and, and I, I, I have found this, that a lot of that music today I love. Yes. And, oh, I know. And, 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 I, and, and you know, it, it's, it, it's not that they're earworms. I mean, this is good music yes, largely, yes. but you know, like anything else, it grows on you. Yes. And the more the more you played it, the more you you had to concede this is this is some good stuff. Uh, well, you know? Do you remember we played early Blues Traveler all in the oh, groove? Yeah. Oh yeah, I great lo- song. I loved that you know? song. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these you mentioned, Spin Doctors. A lot of these these bands that yep. would become huge. Um, we started, and then there were a lot that, that that I'm sure I would remember if I if I heard it or saw it again, and then some oh, yeah. that I'm probably no. There were some Juli- Juliana Hatfield, and and I, I can't even think of. It was so archaic. We actually had a a little ring with of index cards. Remember? Yeah. Oh yeah. And they and they they you had to go through, and and luckily you could choose. I don't think you had to go in a particular order. No. But like every half hour, you had to pick three songs from the the note cards, the index cards, and so we'd go through. So I learned to have my favorites, but but. At the first, at the beginning, I didn't know any of them when we were freshmen and we signed up right. and started in the fall. And so it's like, all right, I got to pick one of these and we'll see. Um, but then you, you know, you listen to other people's shows and stuff, and and, and eventually you hit your favorites. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's so. That's where Big Audio Dynamite Two came from. Um, I remember playing that. And I remember like I liked it. Like I didn't like it like it where I wanted to listen to it all the time. But I liked it for what it was. I liked it for what it was doing. It was it was hip hop. But it was also punk. It was also rock. It was also reggae. It just everything but the kitchen sink. In, in kind of the way Delight did it, but not in a commercial dance way. Right. But in just kind of a, you know, see, here, road trip way. Here's an example. I will take Delight over Big Audio Dynamite any really? day. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Delight, there, there's, you know, musically, it, it is... Because, I mean, that is one of the things that I love about Groove is in the Heart. I mean, I, I love jazz, right. for one thing. I love blues. And, you know, the instrumentation, the the, the music uh, at work there, I mean, yeah, it's a dance track. But, you know, it's they're complicated, very complex, and very sophisticated movements. I mean, you're and, sampling Herbie Hancock, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, and, you know. But, there, I, but I know you don't have, like, but, the Who, but, you know, Big Audio Dynamite yeah. sampling the Who. But here's the thing about Big Audio Dynamite is that, to me, it never meshed. Hmm. To me, it felt like it was all over the place, it was. and it was just not. It what there was no aesthetic to it. Yeah, no, it was you know? very raw. It's very yeah, and I just very blue collar. Yeah, and I, you know, it, if you're going to bring all of these genres together, and and even in tribute, in tribute, or or even just for fun, you know, you've got to actually. I, I I'm I'm a stickler like like mixtapes. I mean, hmm. there has to be tonally. Uh, you know, or or you know, the emotional journey. I mean, every song should lead very neatly, segueing very cleanly into the next. When you bring everything together and it's just jarring, and it's, it, I just, I can't. I don't. I find it very uncomfortable. I mean, it's it's like that's not how music is supposed. To, it's very. Uh, it's, it's very it's dissonant. dissonant it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, I know which song you'll be fast forwarding then. <laughs> I should say. We don't fast forward anymore. We don't. Uh, we no. skip. All right. Uh, you, you done? I'm done. Yeah, okay. I'm well, here is my next pick. And this one's going to take me a while. I'm, I apologize. I usually, I, I'm trying this season not to go long. But this story from start to finish is just, it, 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 it is just, it's pretty remarkable. Okay? okay. All right. So this one was first written in 1982. It was then released as an acapella track in 1987. It was then remixed without the singer's permission in 1990. 
And the song, of course, is called Thomas Diner. Yeah, I think one time we accidentally, one of us referred to it as Uncle Thomas Diner. Yeah, yeah. That is, <laughs> Remember that? Uh, yeah. We're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> Thomas Diner, it became a major hit finally in 1991, to everyone's surprise. Okay, the story kind of goes like this. First of all, the Thomas Diner of the song is Tom's Restaurant in New York City, which is a mid-20th century diner on the corner of Broadway and 112th Street, uh, singer and songwriter Suzanne Vega was a frequent patron uh, during the early 80s when she was a student at nearby Bernard College. This is the same diner that later became famous, of course, is the location used for the exterior scenes of Monk's Cafe in the popular 90s sitcom Seinfeld. Same place. For those who may not remember the song well, it begins with the narrator stopping at a diner for a cup of coffee. The song mentions reading a newspaper as well as seeing two women, one who enters the diner, one who stands outside in the rain adjusting her stockings in the diner's window. Very stream of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, you know, there are ringing of bells at a nearby cathedral, which causes the narrator to reminisce about an unnamed companion and a midnight picnic. And at the end of the song, the narrator leaves the diner to catch the train after the coffee is finished. It is stream of consciousness. It, this is a song. It's that rare song where it, it's it's free verse. I mean, there is there's no rhyme. There's really no rhythmic you know, cadence to the song. Well, she does have the, her own little chorus right, that she yeah. sings. Yeah, but... The do-do-do but, but in the um, actual acapella version, that only appears at the end. That's, right, that's correct. the fade-out of correct. the song. Mm-hmm. All right, so the song is actually based on a comment by Vega's friend. His name was Brian Rose. He was a photographer. He had mentioned to her that in his work, he sometimes felt as if, quote, he saw his whole life through a pane of glass... And like he was the witness to a lot of things, but was never really involved in them. So she took that idea and attempted to think and write in this fashion, including from a male perspective, while sitting at Tom's restaurant. The bells of the cathedral that she remarks hearing in the song are those of the cathedral of St. John the Divine, located one block to the east, which rang as she was writing the song. First written in 82, the song was released five years later on Vega's second studio album, Solitude Standing. That was 87. Um, she originally conceived Tom's Diner as a piece for voice and solo piano. Okay, And two versions actually feature on Solitude Standing. The album opens with the a cappella version, and there is an instrumental version played on keyboards with guitars lending support that closes the album. The instrumental track was released as a single in 87, but it never charted until four years later in 91. And then only with the help of two British record producers under the name DNA. In 1990, DNA remixed Tom's Diner. They grafted Vega's vocals onto a dance beat from Soul to Soul, okay, which was from Keep On Moving. And, and they turned her, sam- her simple ad-libbed outro, da-da-da-da, do-do-do-do, and they, they turned that into the song's driving hook. It was impossible to get a whole song into a sampler. So they spent evenings and weekends cutting Vega's vocals into little bits. And, and all, this done was with, all this was done without her permission or her record labels or her publishers. The duo basically released the remix on a limited basis for distribu- distribution to clubs. And they, they titled the song Oh Suzanne by DNA featuring Suzanne Vega. Well, A&M Records learned of this, of course. The label decided to buy and release the remix rather than take DNA to court for copyright infringement. Smart move. Yeah, so A&M struck the deal after consulting with Vega. She liked the interpretation 
And DNA, who conducted the transaction through intermediaries, uh, they never revealed their true identities. Um, you know, made made this made the sale. the The remix became much larger hit than Vega had with the song originally. It never charted for her. Uh, their version, this this dance version, peaked at number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and it became one of a handful of tracks to chart in the top ten of both the modern rock tracks and the Billboard R&B hip hop tracks. The song then spawned a number of hip hop, dance, and rock remixes and remakes from artists. Um, such as Peter Behrens uh, and, and Bingo Handjob. There was a whimsical one-time collaboration between Billy Bragg and R.E.M. It was also sampled in songs by Public Enemy, Nicky D, Twin Hype, Yo Gotti, Lil' Kim, among other hip-hop acts. So in 91, the story continues, Vega, noting the huge number of remakes of the song, released Tom's album. It was a compilation of different versions of the song, spanning a variety of musical genres, including, my favorite, a parody by Mark Jonathan Davis that worked in references to I Dream of Genie called Genie's Diner. Nick at Night actually used that one to promote its airings of the show. The album featured another DNA remix of one of her songs called Rusted Pipe, and on the album's sleeve, Vega wrote, a small song about eating breakfast became a song about accidental pregnancy. Uh, that would be Daddy's Little Girl. Um, which was a remake or a reboot, and the recent war in the Gulf, that one was titled Waiting at the Border. One version incorporates forgotten bits of pop culture, Jeannie's Diner, and she wrote, all of them surprised me, a couple made me wince. I've included all of them anyway. Tom's Diner was also used, um, in addition to all of this, this is really cool, it was used by Carl Heinz Brandenburg to develop the audio compression scheme known as MP3 hmm. at what is now the Fraunhofer Society. Okay? In, in a 2009 documentary about the history of the song, yes, this song actually has its own documentary, by Swedish SVT, Brandenburg said, I was finishing my PhD thesis... And then I was reading some Hi-Fi magazine and found that they had used Tom's Diner to test loudspeakers. Never knew that either. I said, okay, I'm ready to fine-tune my compression algorithm. Let's test what this song does to my sound system, to MP3. He said, when I first heard the song, I was electrified. I knew that it would be nearly impossible to compress the warm acapella voice. And the result was, at bit rates, where everything else sounded quite nice, Suzanne Vega's voice did, in fact, sound horrible. 
So Brandenburg adopted the song for testing purposes. He listened to it again and again. Each time he refined the, the scheme, making sure that it did not adversely affect the subtlety of Vega's voice. So while the MP3 compression format is not specifically tuned to play the song Thomas Diner, among audio engineers, this anecdote has earned Vega the informal title, The Mother of the MP3. Yeah, I didn't know that story. It's a great so, story. Yeah, I mean, literally, this song is just like, it, it's it's un, unfathomable. I mean, it is it is everywhere, and it has infiltrated popular culture since 82 through the digital age and is in part responsible for Spotify, iTunes, and any other streaming service that you now have today. So it's... I, to me, it's that's a story I had to share. I mean, it's just great story. It, yeah. It's fantastic. It's funny, you know, going back to '91. Like, I, I didn't know all of that background, and I didn't, I wasn't familiar with Suzanne Vega, but I came. I, I knew her for Luca. That, right, that was the right. only song I knew. Yeah. yeah oh, I, I, I used to go to the library a lot to get you know records to to try stuff just to be experimental on CDs and so forth. I remember picking up on vinyl the '87 uh, release from her, and hearing the song, and I went, oh. Oh, so there is actually a song before yeah. the remix, you know. All right, so uh, here's my, again, with grunge, I could have chosen a lot. Um, I'm going to stick with, with the two that people know the best. And we've already talked about um, Nirvana. I'm going to talk about Pearl Jam. Yep. And I'm going to go back to um, the song that started it all for them and the song that I still like the best, and that's Alive. Okay. Which was another one that we played on rotation. We're, we're going to have... Uh, Oh, okay. An artist match-off. Okay, so. all right. But that's okay. I'm probably going to let you win. Nirvana, Nirvana wasn't the uh, only grunge act to hit the charts in the early 90s, of course. And although uh, I could have chosen songs by Song Garden, Alice in Chains, L7, Stone Temple Pilots, Smashing Pumpkins, several other great bands that didn't chart, um, I am going to choose Alive. Lyrically, the song is a somewhat fictionalized account of when frontman Eddie Vedder discovered that the man he thought was his father, was not his biological parent, which would be a, you know, a bit traumatic. Uh, but the song did not originate with him. Guitarist uh, Stone Gossard, who along with Jeff Amet and Mike McCready were starting up a band, and they were looking for a lead vocalist. Um, somehow Vetter, who was living in Southern California at the time, came across a demo, which at the time was called Dollar Short. And so he had listened to the song, and he was surfing later, and he came up with these lyrics while he was surfing. So he comes home, he records his vocals over the demo, sends it up to Seattle to the other guys, and when they heard it, they reached back and said, uh, would you like to join our band? And that's kind of how Pearl Jam got started. So Alive is an important song um, just in the fabric of the band itself. Right. And then the band became, of course, Pearl Jam. And so... Um, we don't know what would have been with Nirvana, of course, because Kurt Cobain tragically took his own life um, in 1993, I believe was the year. Um, they only had, they had their, their demo, kind of their indie release prior to, because um, um, I think that was Bleach, prior to Nevermind. Um, yeah. And then they had, uh, they had In Utero. And then they had the MTV Unplugged. And they had the Unplugged. MTV Unplugged. And, and that, was, that was pretty much it for them. So who knows what would happen had they continued to, uh, to produce music. And if, if, you know, Kurt never liked the spotlight. He never liked the fame. No, he didn't. Um, so had he lived, I could have easily seen him just kind of retiring and going off into obscurity. I see him doing a John Lennon. Like, like yeah. Lennon or, or, yeah. or Salinger in a, in a literary sense, wow. you know. Yeah. 
But um, yeah, I could have seen that. Now, Pearl Jam continued to to make music. And even though they were not commercially um, as successful as maybe some other bands at the time, they had a, you know still have a huge following yep. to the point where they produce so much music. And it's kind of like um, Springsteen and Fish and Grateful Dead, where there are all sorts of bootlegs that circulate. Uh, they have their own serious um, XM channel. And so they've had a huge impact on um, on rock and, and modern rock and alternative and, and grunge. Um, they kind of fit all around there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I remember at the time, I don't think, at first I wasn't as enamored with Pearl Jam as Nirvana, but then there was a switch somewhere, probably in 92, where I preferred, you know, Pearl Jam. Um, but I never really immersed myself into Pearl Jam like I've always wanted to. Um, you know, we mentioned our, our, our friend Tad last week, his, his twin brother, Tim, was huge. Pearl Jam fan, like like obsessed, and so I knew there was a there was a depth there that I could get into if I ever gave myself a chance. And um, you know, it's somewhat daunting when the catalog is so large. Oh yeah, um, I think yeah, it's seven. But much like I got into Wilco much too late, um, someday I may take the time to appreciate uh, Pearl Jam in in their spanning career. so much alike because I, same thing I mean I, you just kind of delivered my speech for me frankly the only exception is initially um, I preferred 10 by Pearl Jam much more than Nevermind by Nirvana um, I remember when I purchased 10 and I purchased it on the strength of Alive and Even Flow because those were the two that you know had, had I had heard and they were pervasive they were everywhere and I said, it's time. I went out and bought the CD and I played it from start to finish. And I found that, you know, just the entirety of the, of the, the collection. Um, it also had Black and Jeremy. Oh, it has a lot. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I basically, you know, I just fell in love with this album. But here's the thing. Like you, I did not immerse myself into Pearl Jam because I, I went on to buy a couple more of their CDs, never listened to them in, in, in this same kind of way. Whenever I felt like Pearl Jam, like listening to Pearl Jam, I would still put in 10 and 10 and 10. I never never progressed, even though I bought a few more of them. I, I liked a song here. I liked a song there. But for me, the switch came a little bit later. It was after Cobain had taken his life where I finally began to really love Nirvana because I, I was slow to on the take to Nirvana. I, I To me, the distortion was it, it was just I don't know I, I don't I, I'm a lyrics guy 
See, and let me, and I'm let, not, so that's yeah, maybe and, why I and like And let me tell you so what, much. if you're a lyrics guy, Cobain was your worst enemy. Yeah, he because, may have been worse than Stipe in yeah, some cases. I mean, well, well, hell, I mean, the, the legend says but, but that... Vedder wasn't the most... Uh, well, no, 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 he wasn't. But, but my point is, le- legend has it that Cobain, especially with Smells Like Teen Spirit, he never sang the same words twice. Sure, I you can know? see that. And it, it's like... Um, but there came a point where musically, I just... It wasn't even musically. It was Cobain. The more I learned about him the more fascinated I became with Nirvana and their music. Um, like he was a so, huge Beatles fan. Oh, yeah. Totally enamored yeah. with John Lennon and his Exactly. Style. Yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, I, I came to respect Cobain's so, so much just as, as the person. Of course, you know, I have issues about the suicide and, and whatnot, but, um, and, and mental health. I mean, that's another topic of discussion. But uh, the the point is that, very much like you, I'm I'm not a grunge person. I never have been, um, and you know I love songs by various artists. I mean, there's a Stone Temple Pilots song here, a Soundgarden song there. That I, but I've never been a grunge fan, a diehard. Um, but Ten, I mean, that album for whatever reason I loved. Um, now I picked a different song, but I'm gonna end up going with Alive because I think it's the better. Pick. I mean, Alive was the start of it all, and that was their first release. It's, it's the song that everybody heard that that you know brought them uh, into the game. But I actually chose Jeremy. Hmm, yeah. Okay, um, Jeremy spoke in class today. I mean, with, with these four words, you know, the, the third single from Pearl Jam's al- debut album, it it proved incredibly controversial. Uh, titled Jeremy. It was about a boy who kills himself at school to get revenge on the students who had tormented him. Uh, the song was based on the true story of Jeremy Della, a 15-year-old sophomore who had killed himself in front of his English class at Richardson High School in Richardson, Texas, on January 8th, 91. Eddie Vedder found out about Jeremy when he read an article about the incident in the Dallas Morning News, which read... Because he had missed class, the teacher in his second period English class told Jeremy to get an admittance slip from the school office. Instead, he returned with a gun, police said. He walked directly to the front of the classroom. Miss, I got what I really went for, he said, then placed the barrel in his mouth and fired. The article, which incorrectly stated Jeremy's age at 16, added that three Richardson students also committed suicide in 88. Okay. Now, I suicide... I, as a teacher and the history of um, that, that, you know, there, there's a history there uh, in our county and uh, just in, in some of the districts in our county. Um, you know, it, it's something that I, I can relate to, to this story in a way. And I felt, if nothing else, it was good to, to sure. you know, sure. to bring it up. The video was more controversial still because at the end of the video, we see Jeremy walk shirtless into his classroom. He throws an apple to the teacher and makes a gesture as if pulling something from his pocket. We later see his classmates shocked and sprayed with blood, implying that Jeremy has shot himself. Okay. Originally, this section of the video showed the gun, but MTV ordered it removed, citing a policy against showing firearms. That didn't sit well with director Mark Pellington, who has said in interviews that MTV made him set it out the gun going into his mouth, that created the great confusion, which made it appear like he brought the gun and perhaps shot his classmates, which was a huge misinterpretation. 
And years later, it connected Jeremy to school shootings, which was not what the song is about at all. Yet people like to continue to make that connection. Pellington continued, I've never seen uh, a video that still gets written about so much. Maybe it was the underbelly of disenfranchised youth, the timelessness of that, if, if you think about it, from James Dean to Montgomery Clift, those kinds of icons. It predated the whole shooter mentality of angry young white kids. So in that time, a kid taking a gun into a classroom was way ahead of, it, of its time. It was pre-Columbine. And when there is a school shooting, now it often gets mentioned. Uh, the star of the video is Trevor Wilson, who was 12 years old when it was filmed. He got the gig over about 200 other child actors with a VHS audition tape that was shot when he was sick. So he looked dissociated without being the cliche angsty young man. It was his first acting job. He nailed it, capturing the moody torment that the, that director Pellington was looking for. Uh, the video drew lots of attention to Wilson, who recoiled from the adulation and gave up acting after the music video. His last public appearance was at the Video Music Awards, where he joined the band on stage when they accepted Video of the Year. He went on to work for the United Nations and fill uh, journals with his writing. In 2016, he drowned in Puerto Rico at age 36. And according to Wilson's mother, the band stayed in touch with Trevor. They got him tickets to their shows anytime he requested them. Eddie Vedder caused further controversy in 93 when the Jeremy Video won four MTV Video Music Awards. In accepting the Video of the Year trophy, Vedder said, quote, if it weren't for music, I think I would have shot myself in front of the classroom. It really is what kept me alive, so this is kind of full circle. The power of music, to the power of music, thanks. A lot of people are not happy with you know, his aside there as well. In 96, Barry Lucatus, a 14-year-old junior high school student in Washington State, shot and killed two students and a teacher when he went to school. His lawyer claimed that Lucatus was copying the video for this song, which was then shown at the trial. And he was convicted uh, on three counts of murder. So Vedder said that this song and another 10-track uh, were never about you know, um, school shootings, but rather... Uh, they have a similar theme of the lack of parental attention. Um, the other track, I don't know if I said it, is Why Go. Mm -hmm. um, in, in 2018, here's where the story comes uh, to an end. In, in 2018, Jeremy's mom, the, the Jeremy, his mom, Wanda Crane, finally opened up to tell her side of the story. While Jeremy did shoot himself in front of the class, he was not the silent, non-social kid portrayed in the song. Uh, that day that he died, he did not, define, did not define his life, she told WFAA News in Dallas. He was a son, a brother, a nephew, a cousin, a grandson. He was a friend. He was talented. He was well-liked. And in fact, a classmate who was in the room when Jeremy pulled the trigger also weighed in, saying, I was angry at the band for writing that song. Uh, the student's name was Brittany King. She said, I thought, you know, uh, you don't know. You weren't there, and nothing in that song that story that they, they wrote is not accurate. So, to me, I mean, is Jeremy the best song in the album? Probably not. But it's the song that I think people remember. And it, it was controversial. It's, it's pre-school shootings. But, you know, its legacy and, and its impact, I think, has become so connected 
with with the culture that we now live in, with the violence that, that we see in schools, that I, you know, it, it's really to me, it, it's it's just the song that really defines the album now for me, um, for good or bad. But it's also a song that I love. At home, drawing pictures. Yep, pick. my last pick. U2. I was waiting for Octung Baby, yeah. After U2 conquered the world with the Joshua Tree and followed that up with a mismatch of new and live songs and rattle and hum, the band decided to go a new direction. Instead of taking inspiration from American rock and blues, the band turned their ear closer to home and decided to let European dance music become their muse. The experiment wasn't without growing pains, but then the band actually nearly split at one point. But the result was a complete 180 that actually worked, uh, as the Joshua Tree and Octung Baby are widely considered their two musical masterpieces, one right after the other. Um, I remember picking up the CD. Um, I believe it was the fall of 91, because yeah. I, I think it was around my birthday, so it was around November. And, uh, and, and, and I think I put it in the car on the way back to school, I think I bought it at home at Quonson Hut. And the first really industrial sounds of uh, um, Zoo Station that begin the album, it was kind of like, is this, is this Nine Inch Nails? Like, what? Did, I buy, did I buy the wrong CD here? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and wow, it was completely different, but I liked it, you know? And, and that's what, I can't think of too many bands who made that type of a, a leap in, in very short, obviously Rattle and Hum was between, but like I said, Rattle and Hum, had a little bit of new material, um, but this was really their next album. And uh, yeah, this was U2, and and um, it's like two halves, right, of the same whole. Um, the first single off the album, um, the single, and an album, by the way, that would produce several hits, including the transcendent one, which I almost considered for this, um, is the one that most people know. In fact, the legend goes they were they were about to split as a band nothing was working they had all sorts of like different experiments you know U2 writes as a band so you know Larry might have brought a particular rhythm track or Adam might have had a bass line or Edge of course had all sorts of different experimental riffs and, and, and such um, but nothing was coming together nothing was coming together and uh, I believe it was Bono that strung the first uh, chords of one and began to sing and they all kind of joined in and you know, as a song, it became their unifier. But uh, I'm actually not going to choose that one. I'm actually going to go with the first single, which was The Fly. And really? Yes, yes. Okay. And I think it's a great representation, representation for the album as a whole. Because um, it has this, like, hip-hop beat. It has, there's that vocal distortion, right, that's become popular in the early 90s. Um, it has an extended guitar solo from The Edge, which is incredible. Um and Bono described the song as, I love this, 
the sound of four men chopping down the Joshua tree. Huh. And okay. I love that idea. I mean, and, and you two has had a difficult time finding a, a different way. They've, they've kind of settled into um, being who, who they are, and, and their sound has been pretty consistent over their last releases. But <clears throat> I appreciate a band. Like, let's say Gin Blossoms. I like Gin Blossoms. They had three, four, maybe four albums. It's, it's all there. It's the same thing. The same sound as their first album. Not criticizing, because I like it. But I really, really like, and we talked about Neil Young. One of the reasons I love Neil Young so much is because he always stays Neil Young, but he always manages to reinvent himself in different eras. And that's, to me, true artistry, because it's not just about selling records for these people. It's not about getting comfortable in this zone and just being that for the rest of their career. And so I really, really admire you 2 They could have continued to make a Joshua Tree-type album for two or three albums, milked that commercially, and then gone off and retired, and and, and that's not what they did. They took a huge risk of completely changing up their sound, and it it was a risk that worked. Going back to our friend Doug, too, I know this was a song he loved. He he was also a DJ for a time um, at uh, WFAL, and uh, I remember this is one that, that, that we heard there also. Um, in fact, you know what? I may have actually heard the single before buying Octung Baby because I think it was released beforehand, so I don't know why I would have been as shocked to hear that industrial sound. It was still not what I was expecting from a U2 album, but um, just, yeah, I, I, I love the song. It's got a great melody. It's It's just so out there if, if it's hard to say unless you lived in that time and heard Joshua Tree because it is so rooted in American rock and roll to hear such a leap only a few years later right yeah I am um, well here's the thing I, I've never been the U2 fan you are I'm, I, I'm just not I, I like U2 uh, I, I I own um, Joshua Tree I own Octung Baby I own Rattle and Hum I'm um but I've, I've never been obsessive. I mean, they're not, they're just not, you know, top tier for me. I will say that Octung Baby, I hated that album the first time I heard it because I wanted more of right. the Joshua Tree. It took me a very, very long time to acclimate to that change. Once I did, as much as I'm, I, I'm not a U2 hardcore fan, but Octung Baby is probably one of my favorite albums of the 1990s. I mean, I just, I, on, you know, repeated listenings, finally I just got to this point where I was, I, I loved it. I think it, I, I mean, loved it. obviously um, there are a lot of great things from Radiohead in the 90s too. Uh, so I can't say that Octung Baby is the definitive greatest album of the 90s, right. but it's, it's definitely up there. Yeah, I am. Um, now, and for me, they never had another album that did it for me. I've, I have not bought anything 
buy, I mean, I have singles and as a DJ, I have everything, but going out and, you know, buying, purchasing for myself, I've, I've never purchased another U2 album since Octane Baby. Um, cause I'm just not, all you can't leave behind was a well, no, no, no. pop masterpiece. It, 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 yeah, it's very good. So, and I have all the same as, yeah. as a DJ I right. kind of, you know, I get everything for free now, but I, I, yeah, I just, I've never been that huge fan. Um, but it, it really is, I mean, the change that they made, it was bold. It was very brave. Mm-hmm. Um, and it speaks, it, it speaks very clearly about the band and, and, you know, just their, just, you know, their, their influences and, and they're willing to, to put themselves out there and, and experiment the experimentation in music. So it's, yeah, it's very notable. I, um, no, I, I knew you would have the out. I didn't know what song. The fly kind of surprised me. It's not where I thought you'd go. Yeah, um, I mean, I it's very it's very cool. Yeah, a I lot just, of different songs. Yeah, um, you know what we did there? What did we do there? Well, because I I spoke at length about um, alive, and you spoke at length about Jeremy. It was actually your pick because you were responding to my pick. So here's what I'm going to do. Well, no, Jeremy was my next song. Oh, was it your next? Yeah, song? Yeah, it was my next okay. song. Okay, well, I'm going I'm going to go ahead and and we're, let's let's go with Jeremy. Okay. okay. And then um, I'm going to choose um, the, my last pick will be my alternate song. Okay. Is that good? Yep. All right. And because I don't want to leave this band out because it's one of my, my favorites. And this was another great pop contribution in 1991. I'm talking about Genesis. Huh. Okay. Huh? What do you mean? We I, Can't Dance was. Uh, I, I love We Can't Dance. It's just I don't hold it up to the same heights as some of the. Well, I mean. As the albums that came before. What, I'm curious which song you're going to go with. Though. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to. Well, it's the one that was popular in, in, in the fall of '91. Okay. I think most of the songs hit no, later on. No son of mine. Correct. Correct. Okay, got it. Um, Genesis would travel quite a journey from their days as experimental progressive rockers in the '70s to pop rock stars of the '80s. Um, and although they never truly abandoned their progressive side, the shorter pop-directed singles had a tendency to fare better on the charts. Of course, right? Radio is willing to play them. Um, but sometimes they successfully combined the two. And so I think No Son of Mine is a perfect example. And this is another reason I chose it. It is, it is more of a popular contribution that's radio friendly, but it's like six minutes long. The song was originally called Elephantus. Elephantus. Elephantus, based on that unique sound that opens the track. Okay, okay. Okay? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, Phil Collins wrote lyrics for it and became No Son of Mine. But that's kind of where it began. Um, the song evolved into a story of a, a family abuse and uh, attempted uh, reconciliation. But despite the longer runtime, it was a hit. Hard to find, and I need 
I just think it would be difficult to talk about music in 91 without mentioning this record because um, it was a huge part of uh, a freshman year of college. I remember driving to visit our friend Todd uh, in Toledo <laughs> and we were discussing this song because I believe it was oh, at right. this time yeah. that, that uh, Eric Clapton's son it, it tragically passed away. Well, that happened. Our, um, well, it happened no. in '91, but it was our senior. We were still in high school, and his no boys. Okay, but we were discussing that because Todd tried to convince me that this song was about Eric Clapton's son dying, and I'm like, no, the no, lyrics no. don't fit here, buddy. And he's no. just like, no, it is, it is, it's totally about that. So, I'm like, why would why would a song about an angry, a bad relationship between a, yeah. an adult son disowning and disowning your child after he falls out of a window <laughs> makes no, do with no sense. Yeah. Um, but I don't know this album. Yeah, I mean, the, the song We Can't Dance, I can't listen to anymore. Um, but there are songs on there like Driving the, the Last Bike, which that, are just a masterpiece. Yeah, that one is fantastic. Um, and so this album, to me, is right up there with Invisible Touch. It's right up there with the self-titled Genesis album. Um, it's it, you know it, it's hard to compare a lot of the later Phil Collins Genesis with the earlier um, Peter Gabriel well, yeah, led you, you can't Genesis that, because yeah. they were very proggy. Two different um, Duke bands. is a great hybrid of the two. Duke may be the best uh, when you want to kind of have one foot in both worlds. But um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose No Son of Mine. No, it's very cool. I, no, I I didn't mean to sound like. No, I know <laughs> why Genesis. I I just wasn't expecting that to be the choice. Yeah, so it, yeah. no, it's very cool. All right, well, here is my last pick. And one of us is going to have to go to the alternates list again, okay? Because I already told you I picked Smells Like Teen Spirit. Right. Um, this is the only song by Nirvana that has ever, that, that had ever, and has kind of suggests that they're still doing what they do, which is not at all true. Uh, it, it was the only song by Nirvana that ever charted. It hit number six on the Hot 100. Um, the story of the song, it's it's really quite interesting. Kathleen Hanna, who is the lead singer of the group Bikini Kill, gave Cobain the idea for the title when she wrote Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on his bedroom wall in Sharpie after a night of drinking and spraying graffiti around the Seattle area. In reference to the the deodorant? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, In his pre-Courtney Love days, Cobain went out originally with Bikini Kill lead singer Toby Vale, but she dumped him. Vail wore Teen Spirit deodorant and uh, fellow band member Hannah was implying, jokingly, uh, that night that Cobain was marked with her scent, (laughs) which is what what she meant when she wrote that on his wall. Kurt smells like Teen Spirit. So six months later, Hannah got a call from Cobain asking her if he could use what she wrote on his wall for a lyric. And Hannah said at the time, I thought... How in the hell is he going to use Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit as a lyric, okay? Well, Cobain, unfamiliar with Teen Spirit deodorant, (laughs) thought that Hannah was complimenting him on his rebellious spirit as someone who could inspire youth. So Cobain said he wrote this song because he was feeling disgusted with his generation's apathy and with his own apathy and spinelessness. This feeling of detachment is what led to lyrics like, oh well, whatever, never mind. According to bassist Chris Novoselic, um, Kurt uh, really despised the mainstream, and that was what Smells Like Teen Spirit was all about, the mass mentality of conformity.
kids immediately could relate. I mean, the 90s was just a very disenfranchised you know, time. And then, you know, kids were beginning to feel the weight of, of a world that they, that was, you know, cold, heartless. Things were not as they had promised, you know, as, as when, the, when they were much younger, that they would grow up and find a world that was welcoming and open and free. Um, so the media began to frame Cobain as a spokesperson for Generation X when this song became a hit. Cobain responded by saying, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say it, I don't have the answers for anything. I don't want to be a fucking spokesperson. Excuse the language, but I mean, it, you know, that was Cobain. And I'm just gonna give him the justice he deserves and quote him directly. Uh, in response to Cobain's refusal to speak for his generation, um, producer uh, Butch Vig said at the time that that ambiguity or confusion was the point. He said, what the kids are attracted to in the music is that he's not necessarily a spokesperson for their generation. He doesn't necessarily know what he wants, but he's pissed. It's all these things working at different levels at once. I don't exactly know, he said, what teen spirit is about, but you know it means something, and it's intense as hell. So with this track, Nirvana helped to ignite the grunge craze, which was characterized as we've already said, loud guitars, angst-ridden lyrics, flannel, etc. Okay, um, and basically, Cobain would dismiss the term grunge. Though mm-hmm. he thought it was a meaningless label when asked about it in early interviews. Uh, Novoselic explained again, the bassist uh, uh, for Nirvana explained that it was a growling, organic guitar sound that defined it, um, but. In an interview with Mojo Magazine in March 2011, Dave Grohl said that Teen Spirit definitely established that quiet, loud, dynamic thing that the band fell back on a lot of the time. No, the Pixies did, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He said it it did become that one song that personified the band, but Grohl believed that the video was probably the key element to the song becoming a hit, Okay, which we've already talked about, the video. He said people heard the song on the radio and they thought, this is great. But when the kids saw the video on MTV, they thought, this is incredible. These guys are kind of ugly <laughs> and they're tearing up their, their effing high school. I'm not going to swear twice in the episode. Um, so uh, I think that had a lot to do, and that this is still Grohl's quote, I think that that had a lot to do with what happened with the song. He said, but do I think it's the greatest single of all time? Of course not. I don't even think it's the greatest Nirvana single. Smells Like Teen Spirit was a great moment in time, but there's better. And that was a sentiment shared by all three members of Nirvana. In fact, at many of their later shows, Nirvana would not play this song. And that was a decision they made, hoping to root out the people that were coming to their shows only to hear a hit. Interestingly. In 2016, uh, in an interview with Rolling Stone, Novoselic brought up a very interesting hypothetical. He said, you know, Kurt was a cynical bastard. He could be a vicious critic. He said, I mean, I I love him, but boy, I don't know what he would think of a lot of music today because he would not hold his punches, you know? Which begs the question, I'm going to ask you, how do you think Cobain would respond to today's music? Well, like I said, I don't know if he would have just gone off into 
like I think he might have just JD Salinger. He would refuse to even comment on it. I mean, yeah. obviously it wouldn't have been what he would. I mean, he yeah, he wasn't a spokesperson for the generation, but he embodied the Gen X slacker. Oh, wait, without question. Uh, which became came kind of a, a, a stereotype. Yeah. Um, definitely, but it, again, in a good way. And I'm not, you know, I said earlier uh, where a lot of kids our age, it was just about having fun all the time. Right. And for us, we saw that, yeah, having fun is good and important and we enjoyed ourselves. But there was there was more to life than that, right? There was something deeper than that. And I think Kurt felt that on a much larger scale. And and, and, and he struggled, uh, you know, with his own mental illness. Yeah. And he had his, his thing going there. And, and, of course, as a, I don't know, do I use the word genius or artist or whatever, but there's that personality type which is very very sensitive to the world Mm -hmm. and he definitely fit that uh he felt that pain of the world more than anyone else and so it may have been easy in the in the 80s the decade of excess to put a gloss on everything and say everything was perfect you know we said last week that oh look at this it was such a carefree time when we know in actuality it was not uh it just people pretended maybe that it was yeah and I think Kurt was the one that really pulled off that veneer and said, yeah, no, things aren't as good um, as everybody says it is. And he was not afraid to show that reality. And so, yeah, he wouldn't pull his punches today. He would be very stark yeah. on what he felt. I agree. All right, so we need to decide, though. We Are we going come as you are? Or are we going smells like Well, I'm out of al- alternate, so. Oh, okay. Why don't we pick? I don't care either way. I, I don't care either way. Just pick one, and then you I, still have your I, alternates. Okay, I would say, I think... Honestly, I think "Smells Like Teen Spirit" is the better choice because that was the song. That's that, fine. Yeah. I, I think it's the song that changed it all. You know. Um, yeah, go ahead. And like it. like Grohl said, it was it the best Nirvana song? No, but I, I think that um, that was the song that opened all the doorways. I think I was probably not picking it for Kurt, like in the same way that you said they didn't play it live right. anymore. Yeah, but, which uh-huh. I understand. But if you know, if we're talking ninety, that was the song. I, I think. I mean. If you're okay with it. Yeah, no, totally, totally, yeah. So you don't have any more alternates? What do you got? Okay. Well, my alternates are, and I'll let you pick from the, I guess I'll let you pick from the alternates then. Uh, I have, first of all, um, by Red Hot Chili Peppers, I have Under the Bridge. Oh, I do have an alternate. I do have one. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to keep naming my alternates. Yeah, keep naming yours. Keep naming yours. I had Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. I had November Rain by Guns N' Roses. I had Right Here, Right Now by Jesus Jones. <laughs> the first two were good. You were on, you were on a roll there. <laughs> I have, well, you're going to love this one. I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. Yeah. That one was from New Jack City, okay. if you remember the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also have, which you're not going to care about this one either, my last alternate is OPP oh, yeah. by Naughty by Nature. Okay, so you, so you got me with with, with the peppers and um, uh, what else? Uh, what? Guns and Roses. Guns and Roses. I did. Guns and Roses always walked that line for me between being a hair band and being a legitimate uh, hard rock band. Like, oh, I, like they had good stuff. I think they. I mean, they were. I think they were both, but yeah. artistically, I mean, yeah, they, they were they were they, a hair they band were the with, with credibility. Yeah. Oh, let's put it that way. Uh, it Satanist Part One was the one my last alternate. Really? Enigma, yeah. Enigma. From Enigma. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Excuse the pun, but the band Enigma was always an enigma, right? They weren't rock, <laughs> uh, but they were a German electronic new age experimental project, uh, which really doesn't sound like a, a recipe for an international hit. Not really. 
But uh, lightning was indeed captured in a bottle uh, when Satanists uh, hit all over the world, including in the U.S. where it became a top 10 hit. Um, and why wouldn't a song predominantly featuring Gregorian chants play well on the radio, right? <laughs> the record company was shocked as well. Uh, they didn't want to even want to release it, but they were happy to be proven wrong. Um, of course, the band would later find an, another hit, which I like even better, which is uh, Return to Innocence. Yeah, I always preferred that one. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think? I'm, I, it's my pick. So it's your, it's your it, pick. Well, it's my pick, so I'm fine shelving the other two that you had there. Um, but what do you think between... Guns and like what? What fits here? What, what should we go as far as? Well, en- Enigma is. It, it was unique to '91. Um, I never again will a song like that ever hit the charts. It, there's no way in hell a song like that would ever hit the charts again. I'm not entirely sure how it happened in '91. We've already talked about Doug repeatedly. Doug, loved, yes, he loved. He Enigma. loved that yes, song. Um, never, I would never understood. What, well, I think it was. Partially the the Catholicism, he was very devout, and I think the Gregorian chants I sure. played a part in it. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, Guns and Roses is you know it, it's 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 far it's a it's a rocking tune, um, but it also there it has two incredible solos. No, not, not yeah, one, yeah, but yeah, two yeah. incredible solos by Slash. It depends on what you're looking for. I mean, it, it's your pick, bud. I. Chili Peppers of the three, to me, is the band I like the most, and and and, right. and that's a great song. But they would go on to have even even well, because they had stuff before, obviously. But right. they would continue with some really, really, really good stuff. Yeah, I, well, I'll be honest. Uh, under the bridge, had I not went Tom's Diner, Under the Bridge was my next one that I would have. You just used. want to do that? Well, no, no, no. I'm not trying to press you. I'm just saying I was going to use that one. Um, but November Rain was on my list for the longest time as well. Um, you know but, what? But you're right. I mean, Satanists is... I mean, no, I, I'm, I'm going to go with Guns N' Roses. I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, Chili Peppers, for me, you're like, yes, that was the start of it. I remember we played that under the bridge and on, on, on FAL as well. Um, but like I say, I like some of their later stuff later. Um, better. I think Guns N' Roses, however, you know, this was pretty much it for them. Oh, this was the end, yeah. Um, except for other incarnations that never quite landed. And so in this song was very much 1991. And, you know, I'll throw a bone out there to the hard rock uh, fans of the late 80s and, um, and, and, and actually choose a Guns N' Roses song. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it, um, you know, and it was Guns N' Roses, I mean, they took a really daring stance because if you remember, instead of recording a double album, they released two separate albums at the same time uh, because Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2 were released simultaneously. Right. Um, you know, it was a bold move. That was kind of a thing uh, for a while. Springsteen did Springsteen the same thing. Springsteen did the same thing, yeah. Uh, when they were released, Use Your Illusion 2 was the number one album in the U.S. It debuted at number one, the album. Uh, followed by Use Your Illusion 1, that was number two album in the country. The last time an artist actually had the top two albums at the same time was 1974, when two Jim Croce albums held the top spot shortly after his death. Mm-hmm. So, um, now, November, I, you know, it... It's just an incredible song. What and I don't know if you know this. Axl Rose started working on the song as early as 1983, when he was in L.A. Guns. He had been playing with that song for forever. Hmm. So, cool. um, but yeah, it's uh, if you're happy with, it, I, I was not trying to. No, and, what, and talk about epic video. Oh yeah, hugely epic video. Yeah, it, it, one uh, of the one of the, probably one of the more expensive, highly produced videos ever. Yeah. 
who played his uh, wife? Stephanie Seymour right. was yeah. was his wife. Yeah, because it begins with their wedding, and then in the very next scene, it's the same church, and it's her funeral. Well, um, <laughs> so much for trying to keep it under an hour and a half, folks. But you know what? Hey, I think this is good stuff. And well, I knew this well, would be a little bit longer. Yeah, because well, it's, we, we, we talk about memories. Yeah, we stuff. provide commentary. This is, our fre- this is our senior year of high school, our freshman year of college. But we're talking Nirvana, Pearl. You're talking about when music, the face of music changed dramatically. Yep. So yep. I, I expected this one to run a little bit longer. That's good. We're good. But now we have to decide how we're going to um, order the songs on side A and on side B. Yes, we do. We will be right back. All right, we are back, and we did change things up just a little bit. We found a nice little pocket of some of those dance, um, I don't know what, it's not. they're not all dance, but a right. little more industrial, I guess dance, I don't know. We'll see. What? Yeah. We, we, we found uh, a better segue. Yeah, we <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. So I'm just going to run down them here. Hard to Handle from The Black Crows, The Other Side of Summer by Elvis Costello, I Touch Myself from The Divinals, Silent Lucidity from Queen's Right, To Be With You by Mr. Big, Walking in Memphis from Mark Cohn, Learning to Fly by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Losing My Religion from R.E.M., Two Princes by The Spin Doctors, Ordinary Average Guy by Joe Walsh, Wicked Game by Chris Isaac, and ending out side A, It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday by Boys to Men. Flipping the tape over to side B, we begin with Ender Sandman by Metallica, Jeremy by Pearl Jam, No Son of Mine from Genesis, onto Girlfriend from Matthew Sweet, There She Goes by The Laws, Tom's Diner from Suzanne Vega and DNA, then we have Groove is in the Heart by Delight, I'm Too Sexy from Right Said Fred, Rush by Big Audio Dynamite 2, and The Fly by U2. And then we cap off side B with Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana and November Rain from Guns N' Roses. It is very representative of 91. Um, missing some of the hip-hop. Um, maybe we should, you know. Well, I feel like this was a personal episode. It, it was. And yeah. it was more from our experience. True. Then, so yes, of course, there's a lot of great music that was made in 91 that we didn't include. Yeah. But it, our intent was not to make a representative look right. at 91 yeah it was our experience exactly and this this was 91. this was the soundtrack of that year yes. for us yes and um and and what a soundtrack i mean this brings back so many memories i mean it just i don't know i'm, I'm back on campus and i'm still you know i'm, I'm trying to find a date to prom and it, it, it 91 here is very yeah we 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 did our job it's it's uh it's a very accurate representation. And, you know, if hopefully some of you, like us, uh, remember 91 as a milestone year. Maybe you graduated in 91. Uh, 
you know, if any of our classmates are listening, we hope that we gave you uh, some songs, a playlist, a mixtape that will bring back uh, a lot of those memories. Uh, happy 30th reunion to those like us who did graduate in 91. And, you know, it was nice doing a, a specific year. Yeah. I, I wouldn't mind doing that again. It doesn't have to be a milestone for us. Just, you know, pick a pick a year. Um not this season, but it'd be be nice to go back and do that again because it, it it was a totally different vibe. It was it was totally different in picking the songs, really. Um, but uh, well, going on to episode four of this season, we have oh yeah, uh, the next the next episode is girls, 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 which and we will not include any Motley Crue. Yeah, I was gonna say, don't get excited. It's not a hair band episode, but, but girls, what girls, is, girls is the name of an album from a song that will be appearing. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Girls, girls, girls. It is actually our next mixtape will be songs that have girls' names in the title. Um, and let me tell you what this that is a nightmare because I still have not made my decisions because it's. That's why I went to single first name only. Yeah, all know, my picks yeah. are single first name only, including know, my alternates. Yeah. I know you went there. I'm I'm, I'm not going to do that because there are a handful of songs that I most definitely want to include that are not single name, single word titles. But it is just there are so many, and I love them all. So I this may be a recurring, you know, theme year after year until I'm, I'm, I finally knocked them all out and I don't know but um, it's going to be an interesting one so you might want to tune in especially our female listeners we may have a song special for you next week on side A of Girls 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 Alan what do you think do another one of these in 30 years if we are alive 30 years from now then yeah maybe we will consider well, I it I sure hope we are well I hope so but we also have to be able to you know have hand-eye coordination and you know be able to read the hey, screen our grandchildren will, they'll record it for us <laughs> All right, well, hey, hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, we want you to hit pause. We want you to lift the needle and hit eject because we will see you on the flip side. (laughs) 